Hello and welcome to The Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of The Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. Our life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Chen. I'm Red. And I'm Miles. Today we're going to be doing something a little different and just talking about video game peripherals of the past and present. We're going to talk a bit more at length about them. We're going to go into the news and we're going to give our thoughts on some of the wild and wacky ideas that video game developers and console makers have had over the generations. And wild ideas they did have. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the past days, they really make a, quite a lot of weird stuff that we would never imagine something is... Like, we won't think it's related to gaming, but they, they make it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of these things are seem it might seem trivial now, but when they were released, they're innovative and strikingly unique which i think is also partly why it attracted the audience because it was there was nothing like it a lot of the times when they were released but before we get into that got a little bit of news the pokemon company just announced gen 9 i believe yeah it's gen 9 so we have pokemon scarlet and violet have been announced and their starters have been revealed supposedly this region is a look to be based on Spain. It's also set to be the most open world main title in the Pokemon series, whereas like Sword and Shield had a few areas that you could explore open world, and the latest release Pokemon Legends Arceus had larger fully open world with wild Pokemon physically roaming around the areas. They're they're said to be combining that for the new Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. So we're going to be having they said that they're going to have like seamless, borderless transitions between some of the towns and the wild areas with Pokemon that you'll be able to see. No word on whether they're getting rid of the random encounters, but so far what they've announced is there will be Pokemon out in the wild that you can see and interact with. So I believe it may be a good combination of Legends and the previous titles that we've had at least main title entries for Pokemon. We'll wait to see some more gameplay footage, but... Yeah, let's hope they keep the momentum in Arceus because they almost bring me back to Pokemon already. And hope the next one will really get me want to try it on the first day. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, it was such a... It was so refreshing to see an actual try to expand and reinvent the Pokemon world. It was such a bright thing, I believe, that most Pokemon fans have been hoping for for probably close to 10 years. Uh, there, I, I, I remember people claiming that Colosseum on the, on the GameCube was what they were hoping would be the new reinvention, but not quite the true reimagining that people hoped for. We got some good reviews about Elden Ring now. Everybody's joining the open world front now. Everybody on my friends list is playing it. All the reviews have been... 9 or 10 out of 10, short of some technical issues and frame rate drops, which, as far as other gameplay, seem easily fixable with patches, so at least it's not totally gameplay-based issues or struggles with that. It seems that once these frame rate drops and performance issues are fixed, it may just be a perfect Souls game. 
it looks amazing. And to actually have a jump button finally in, <laughs> in a Souls game is really, really fun. I'm probably going to pick that up as soon as I get my next paycheck. Just don't think that jump button will save your life, or you probably just they've got to fall down as much as. Nope. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen so many clips of streamers just riding on a horse, try to jump in the mid of air, and still got the fall damage and just <laughs> you know. <laughs> you can jump, but you're still not immune to the fall damage. So watch your step. Yeah, but I mean, it looks gorgeous, and apparently, like the storytelling in Elden Ring is some of the best storytelling in the series. Whereas in previous Souls games, you would have to a lot of the lore would be based in like specific items in their descriptions, and not necessarily told to you through character interactions. This uh, Elden Ring seems to have really taken a stride for that and added more story into like the side missions to build this massive, massive world. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems really excited about it, and I'm definitely excited to dip my hands in it. But we'll see, and maybe we'll get some talking about it once we actually get some playtime with it. Next bit of news, the Steam Deck has been released. Apparently, one of the upgrades you can get on the Steam Deck is an anti-glare screen, which is good enough to where you can play in really bright, direct sunlight outside. It'll probably still go battery cool. life, because you'd need the, oh, the, yeah. the backlight to be strong enough. But a good anti-glare shielding uh coding on your screen is is very very good otherwise you have to play it like inside you know with the curtains drawn still like yeah so for me personally for i mean a steam deck is meant to be on the go so i feel like that would be a worthy investment to get on your steam deck mm-hmm. if you're trying to play it more on the go yeah because um, that was a problem that i ran into on my switch when i was trying to take it places yeah that's the problem that i had yesterday i <laughs> <laughs> Showed up to work a little early, busted out a hunt from Monster Hunter, and oh man, that was a bit rough. I was going into a cave at nighttime, and I was trying to squint and facing, trying to create a shadow with my head on the screen. It's still a, still a great game, still a beautiful system. Maybe I can see if I can get an anti-glare cover for my screen. Mm-hmm. Might be a worthy investment. I've been hearing a lot of good things about how comfortable people are playing uh, like single player games on Steam Deck and but I'm ha- I'm having I'm hearing problems on playing games like MMO on the Steam Deck as because like Destiny and Fortnite they can run they can possibly run on the Steam Deck the problem is the the part some part of the game like the anti cheating plugin for the game may not run normally on the OS that the Steam Deck is running so i feel like that's a that's an issue that can be resolved relatively easily compared to some other major issues for some other games but i hopefully they will be able to get that figured out relatively soon also, <laughs> bad news, stick drift on the Steam Deck apparently is already an issue, which is not the best news for a brand new uh, handheld. Maybe they'll also find replacement for that or, an, or a fix. From what I've heard, Valve is working on a fix for it, either in software or replacement parts. Um, but yeah, it's a problem. Just like the Switch. Yeah, Joy- Joy-Con used to have the, the stick drift already. Luckily, I haven't had many issues with my Joy-Cons as of yet, but I also use them sparingly. I try to use my Pro Controller when I'm playing on the go as much as I can. 
but we'll see. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been a big problem for me, but I can feel it sometimes. Like if I if I just leave my Joy-Con away from my hands for a while, sometimes I will see my characters moving just by itself in the Monster Hunter game. Yeah, I have an issue with the joy with the stick drift on my PS4 con- on one of my PS4 controllers, which is. You can, they have parts and you can replace it. So I'm going to be working on that too. But now for the main event, I've had plenty of news. Uh, let's get into some peripheral talk. I thought this would be a good, a good thing to start on. I was just like, I was browsing, I was looking for a split pad pro for my Switch uh, from Hori. It's an officially licensed Nintendo, uh, Nintendo Switch product where you get, essentially like a full-size controller feel with controllers that attach to your switch that are create full-size like ergonomic grips uh and it got me thinking about all the weird and interesting peripherals that have been released previously light guns so the first one was the nintendo beam gun so the nintendo beam gun was this solar powered essentially sort of reverse light pen it was the first uh, commercially available light gun. It was produced in partnership with Sharp. And two years later, Nintendo moved on to partner with Magnavox to make the Magnavox Odyssey light rifle, which ended up being, well, look up pictures of it. It's it's a shotgun. Um, it's just a shotgun. Straight up. It's just a shotgun with a wire coming out of it. It looks exactly like a real one. It's made of plastic, but you'd be, you you could. Don't bring it out in public. There could be problems if you waved it around in a public place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as light guns progressed as a technology and as a as a peripheral, they kind of drifted away from looking like guns and looking more like toys. We're going to mm-hmm. skip around a bit. There was the NES Zapper. Shoot, when was that released? I think 1984 in Japan and 1985 in North America. And that was the original Duck Hunt controller, which was really fantastic one of the fun things that we had at some of the events at the museum is we actually had a duck hunt high score challenge where the the original where contestants and kids could come in and do try and get the high score on duck hunt and we had one little girl get quite the high score on the game and she was quite the shooter really on track and her picture was hanging up in the museum for a game well played we hope once we get back open in our space to have more events like that in the future. That actually brings back some of my memory because uh, I think Duck Hunt is actually one of the very first games I ever played in, in my life. Wow. Like I, I remember holding that light gun and shooting towards uh, the television. From there, we also had Sega release the Sega Menacer uh, in 92. And the Sega Menacer was definitely a weird, crazy... Crazy looking gun. If you want to check out pictures, it definitely does not look like any sort of gun. It did look like a premium laser gun right out of some high-end 90s anime. And then the Super Scope from the Super Nintendo as well was basically looked like a big old rocket launcher. (laughs) Another fantastic. uh, Yeah, it was just another really great, fantastic peripheral that we had. There's so many different gun peripherals that we had that we later had the Wii Zapper with the Wii Remote in 2007. The technology behind light guns was very interesting for its time. They started out being essentially just light sensors, so like bright or dark, 
And so, of course, obviously the the cheat for all these light gun games was to just point the gun at a light bulb or something. And it would read the light as it was getting a hit because the way on old uh, cathode ray tube TVs was for the screen to go dark for a split second when you pulled the trigger and a little white box wherever you were trying to shoot. And so the gun would read whether you were shooting at something that was dark or light. So you could bypass that by just pointing at something that was very bright and sort of cheat that way. In the newer systems, in the stuff like the Wii console, which is, I think, basically like the last light gun, the last real light gun technology, it worked using infrared. So that was what that little bar that you had on top of or on bottom of your TV was when you bought a Wii. It was like four little infrared lights. And so the, the sensor on the Wii remote would map those into a sort of orientation so that it could know like in three-dimensional space which way it was pointing it wasn't super accurate it wasn't super fast but it worked it was it was a much easier way to do it than uh having the the screen change because light guns actually didn't work anymore on lcd tvs they only worked on cathode ray tubes which was a very interesting sort of downfall of theirs i mean it was definitely definitely machines of their time with the way that LCD screens work nowadays, the refresh rate and then the light positioning doesn't operate on the same things. Uh, you can watch this really interesting video online too. I think what's with the slow-mo guys, they were playing the original Mario on the NES. And you can see that they actually slowed down. They took a phantom camera, slow-mo camera, and pointed it at the TV. And they slowed it down enough to where you can literally see line by line from left to right from pixel by pixel being lit and showing each frame of the TV at that slow of the motion. So it's coming from top to bottom, left to right. Each pixel would be lit, lit up in fractions of a second, just all the way down. And then it would repeat that process over and over. It was definitely not the same as just having a digital signal printed like perpetually on the screen as most LCD TVs kind of have now. But I think we've talked a little bit enough about all these gun peripherals because we still have some other fun peripherals to get into, as in the fishing rod controller for real fishing in 1996 on the PlayStation, the original PlayStation. It's essentially the handle of a fishing rod. You have one joystick in the center, which I would guess would be like your thumb on the reel to either slow it down or speed up the resistance um, and then you would have your square x triangle and circle on either side of that and then an actual reel that you would reel to try and catch these fish on the game we have a couple of these in stock at the uh at the museum as well which are fun peripherals to actually show and get your hands on and play with the dreamcast also had a fishing rod reel released later in i believe it was 99 as well 99 or 2000 uh, for the Dreamcast, going off that same thing. Fishing controllers are definitely some of the most unique and specific peripherals that you can get for any specific game. Um, whereas, like in the Wii, when the Wii was released, again, it was using the motion controllers from the infrared, where you just had your Wii remote and the nunchuck, and you would use those like the real use your nunchuck as the reel while you're holding the Wii remote. The motion controls and the inspiration is still there, but dedicated controls 
are not necessarily at the same pace uh, as they were now. Uh, the next, another strange and interesting peripheral that came out for, well, the Game Boy specifically had a lot of very unique peripherals. They had a light bar that you could attach to it because there was no, it was no backlit screen. So it was like a light bar that you would place, like clip to the back of it and put it over and it would light up the screen from the top from the top over the screen so you could play in a darker room. Uh, I remember the Game Boy Advance also had a magnifying glass peripheral that you clipped onto the back. You folded it down to make the screen look look bigger. It sat about, I want to say like three inches away from the screen, two, three inches, and just made the screen about an, it looking about an inch bigger in size, which was beneficial for the tiny screen of the game at the time. But I think one of the most interesting peripherals for it was the Game Boy Camera in 1999. The Game Boy Camera, when released, was the world's smallest digital camera at the time. And it also came with a printer, essentially a little receipt printer with rolls of receipt paper. You can take pictures and then print out your little picture in black and white on a little receipt paper. We have one of those at the museum as well, and it is really interesting if you want some black and white supremely low-res pictures of yourself you really only see those kind of crazy idea in the old days like yeah why like why would they want to add a i mean a camera is understandable but why a printer on a on a portable gaming console <laughs> just to be the cool tech guy and to show off your new tech yeah, just because <laughs> it's cool so they add it that that kind yeah. of stuff is really only happening in the in the old days i i they, they were able to take risks they are really cool i yeah. i mean i i'm really hoping that more people take risks as far as hardware peripherals there really hasn't been another giant leap or mega step forward in different peripherals that we can use now. I wouldn't call any of these things steps forward. I'd call them steps sideways. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're experimenting in new directions and a lot of them don't pan out. What are but... you what are you talking about? The Game Boy camera is amazing. <laughs> I mean honestly, with the Game Boy camera, that is the predecessor to all mobile phone cameras. So, once you had like a flip phone that had a digital camera on it or a Palm Pilot, I guess at that original time where you could have a little different some tiny games like Snake and Crosswords or whatever. Yeah, I think all the way to to the age of PS Vita, those developers are still thinking the portable gaming console more like the 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 place we have for the, for a smartphone nowadays. They're thinking more more like a like a media device than just a gaming console. So probably that's why they step quite a different way from just gaming. And now we have the smartphone, so there's no place for them. Nope, not necessarily anymore. I mean, the only thing that the biggest thing that we have for mobile phone peripherals at the moment is just different Bluetooth controllers that you can kind of snap your smartphone in and to use realistic controllers. Some of the next most notable peripherals we had away from all these mobile peripherals was like the balance board for the Wii. Oh, yeah, that one is good. It's a just essentially a, a big plastic board with pressure sensors that you stand on. I remember it being highly used for the original Wii like Olympics, like Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games, where you would actually lean on it to do 
different like ski jumps and everything. You like crouch on it and then lean forward and pick yourself up as to like you're doing a big ski jump. And they also have yoga accessories. It's still funny to me that the Wii would like after a while of playing the Wii, it's like, hey, you've been playing a while. You want to go outside? And it's like, no, thanks. I'm fine. I'm fine inside here playing the game. <laughs> yeah, I m- remember very clearly the the、uh, the Wii Fit Plus game. We told you about just first asking your real age, and then after a, a tons of measurement, they will say, "I feel like your body looks like it's what age?" And usually that age is older than your currently one. <laughs> just a little bit older. <laughs> Not just a little bit. It's quite. <laughs> it did. It did say I was forty when I was fourteen.、Uh, so that's cool. Yeah, that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's it's. So much fun. The Wii had a lot of attachments that you could get to different utilize. I mean, there was like the zapper you could use for Link's crossbow training. There was another sword attachment, I believe, for No More Heroes, where you could plug in the Wii remote and use like a sword fighting, like do the big motions. I mean, while we're talking about peripherals too, I mean, I think we forgot to mention this too, but. All of the Guitar Hero controllers and the Rock Band controllers. We have a tons a lot of different controllers. If I start talking about it, I think I, I would never stop. It just there's just too many. I have one in my drawer right now. <laughs> At the museum, we had a couple set up. We had like a Rock Band set up with、uh, the full mic. We had the keyboard. I mean, we had DJ Hero come out with like a fake,、uh, a fake mixing board that、oh, you、yeah. can scratch. Fake, uh, fake records on too. It, there's so many different, like that could be a whole other episode in and of itself. You know the the Rhythm Game controllers have have already been moving to some something like motion capture already. So,、um, like there's a sensor there. So whenever you lift your hands or put your hands down, they will sense as a sense it and input and. It was corresponding to to the game, and it's so much fun. There's a lot of really fantastic、uh, music peripherals for all these games.、Um, we have another one that came out:、uh, the Sega Activator. Man, the Activator! So the Activator was this thing for the Genesis.、Uh, speaking of things that you put on the ground and stand on, the Activator was this octagon plastic ring. With、uh, light sensors, or no, it wasn't light sensors. It was like infrared lasers or something, and they would send out beams up, and you would stand in the middle of the ring, and it was like advertised as sort of this like, oh, you can do like kung fu or martial arts or stuff in here, and the game will read it. That wasn't quite how it worked. Basically, if you made any motion that crossed one of the eight beams, the game would read that as an input that had been mapped to one of the games. There were only three games that fully supported it. It was Eternal Champions,、uh, Mortal Kombat, and Comics Zone. I think <laughs> it was supposed to be a fighting game thing. It was not good.、Um, <laughs> What do you mean? It wasn't a huge success. No.、Um, <laughs> you basically had to play it in a box, like in a flat roof or ceilinged room, because any bouncing of the light would throw everything off. Its button mapping was weird. You had to either stand perfectly still in the center of this tiny ring, or things would sort of happen at random. It was a cool idea. The idea outpaced the technology. Yes, as a lot of these ended up doing as well.、Uh, I their their ideas were ahead of the technology at the time and what they were capable of doing. There was, however, a Dragon Ball arcade game that used it that apparently worked a lot better. The last big peripheral. 
that we want to showcase and that I think everybody may know is the Steel Battalion control sticks. Uh, this was the most unique one game specific controller that you could ever see. It came with two almost like flight sticks, joysticks that you used to control a real life mech in first person. Not a real life mech, uh, a, a real life digital mech uh, in first person as you're fighting this dark battlefield war uh, with different mechs. We have a special, uh, a special edition of this in, uh, in the museum uh, called the Big Steel Battalion Box. Uh, you can look that up as well online if you want to see pictures of this great thing. It's a box where you're enclosed. You feel like you're actually... It's meant to feel like you're actually in the pilot seat of one of these mechs. Different lights and sounds go off if you get hit, if your health is low. You, you had a gas and brake and turning pedals at your feet. It was meant to be a fully immersive game to act like you've been inside of a mech. Once we get our next physical space to open up the museum again, we will gladly give you any instructions and give you any playtime you want within this big steel battalion box. Mm -hmm. But as far as unique peripherals go, I believe that that is the end of the most interesting ones that we have to offer. Yeah, that's really all we've got time for, too. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what we've been playing? Uh, I have been playing Dragon Age Origins. I hadn't played the Dragon Age franchise before, and so this was a fun sort of foray into that franchise. I'm enjoying it. I started off by playing a uh, elf mage and got sort of that starting story, and I'm not too far in, about an hour or two, but I'm enjoying it. The The graphics are, of course, a little wonky because it's a game from 2006, but it's fun. I like the writing. Uh, I think the voice acting is good. The action is good. The controls are a bit awkward and the tutorials don't really tell you how to play, but it's not rocket science. You can figure it out pretty quick. Yeah, that I mean, the Dragon Age has always been interesting in my mind to check out, but I've never actually gotten the full fledged check out of it. So maybe I will get a check out, too, and see mm -hmm. what the see what all the hype is about. It's pretty cheap pretty often. All righty. I'll keep an eye out for it the next time it's available on a sale. Um, I've I've still just been playing Monster Hunter Rise recently, uh, getting my hunter rank up and playing with some friends, uh, which I realize now is the full way that you're meant to play the game is with a group of more than just yourself. It is a fun game to play solo, but it's a totally different game when you're playing with other people and going on a hunt in a group. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the feeling is quite different. It, it it really is a completely different game when you're playing with other people. It just, it makes the world of difference. And it's a another fantastic entry in the series. I'm very happy with the updated movement with the wire bugs and your mountable palamutes, which are rideable dogs that you can easily traverse these giant maps. I feel like it's the best, uh, it's the some of the best of what they have to offer from Monster Hunter World with their big open maps. I feel like with this new movement form, they haven't quite gotten their map design or like ergonomically down it because of it's a lot more vertical than the other maps have been, but trying to get up into higher places using these new vertical movement controls can not be as conducive to like a smooth gameplay. It kind of puts a halt into things a little bit, but 
it's still large open maps that you can freely traverse all over while you're tracking down these giant monsters to harvest and then make make a lot better armor and weapons with said monster parts. I have been going back to Destiny 2, but uh, it would be more fun if I talk about it next week because there's something big happening in the later of this week. Alrighty. Well, we will get more on the latest Destiny expansion from June next week, The Witch Queen. I think that is about all the time we have for today's episode. We want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at infothemade.org. We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the maid afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before its release on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors Thomas Munkolt and Dan Fabulish. Thank you so much for your support. Till next time, I'm Miles. I'm Chin. And I'm Red. Thank you, and we will see you next week. Oh, and before I forget, uh, if you'd like to uh, come see a little bit of an exhibit in person, we will be at GDC later at the end of March, March 21st through the 25th. We'll have a booth there, so if you'd like to come say hi and check us out and see a little bit about what the maid's about, come say hi. Thank you very much. See you next week.